Well, Becky and I have had the privilege to be away for a couple weeks along with our missions coordinator, Eileen uh, Paulsgrove, visiting a number of different missionaries in three different countries. And so up on the screen, Phil and Cindy Fisk from Belgium. I'll show you their photo in a minute. Then in Budapest, uh, those that our church supports, Randy and Robin Cole, Doug and Christy Andre, Cassidy Baker, Sam Gatz, and Josh Friesen, plus there was a number of others on the Budapest City team. We also had a chance, about four other families we had a chance to interact with. And then in Austria, David and Micah Phillips. Um, so a couple of photographs. This is Phil and Cindy Fisk. Phil is a professor of historical theology at the Evangelical Theological Faculty in Leuven, Belgium. And we were able to spend several days with them. This is in front of their house as we arrived there in Belgium. They live right outside of Brussels. Next slide is uh, Robin and Randy Cole. You may know them. They've been around our church for many years. Uh, Randy actually was an elder before they went to the field, but they both work with a lot of young people over there. Uh, Robin is an uh, adjunct professor at Reformed University, and Randy is also uh, with Reach Global, which is the mission arm of the Evangelical Free Church. He is the crisis and risk manager for Reach Global in Europe, and so he's working heavily with refugees because Hungary borders Ukraine, and so there's been a lot of refugees coming in. Next slide is Doug and Christy Andre, supported by our church. They teach English and work and disciple newer believers. This is them opening gifts actually from their community group. We had a delightful uh, afternoon uh, with them. And then Cassidy Baker. Cassidy is the team leader in Budapest on the ground and so is very active. She actually just got back from sabbatical. She'd only been back for a week. We had an evening one night, actually, where she invited us to join the whole team getting together. First time they'd been together as a whole team in a number of months. That was fun. Sam Gatz is one of our own, and she is a high school teacher, math and English, and has full freedom in her high school to share spiritually and share the gospel. Josh Friesen, our little guy here from uh, Crystal Lake. Pastor Doug's son, we actually got to be on the ground, and this was his first day. He was standing up, and he was still vertical after traveling across the world, but it was, this was his, actually his first day in country, and he came to that uh, get-together that night, and it was delightful to see him in country, and he's going to be involved in sports ministry, hopefully, and engaged with lots of young people. And then uh, we went over to Austria, and we spent a couple days with David and Micah, Phillips. Mike is actually Slovakian, and they work with young people and a lot of sports ministry. And we actually then spent a day, we went over into Slovakia to the capital Bratislava, where she grew up, got to meet her father, got to see her home, where she was from. And they just have a really compelling heart for ministry. And it was a delight and a privilege to spend time. And Eileen visited in different order uh, all the same people that we were able to connect with. So what a blessing and what a joy to see these people on the ground and that we have part of it and that we as a church get to be part of it through prayer and through our financial support of what they're doing. Habakkuk. We're currently, as Pastor Doug said, in a series on the last 12 books of the Old Testament. They're the last 12 in our English Bible, not in the Hebrew Bible. Hebrew Bible ends in Chronicles, as we've said. But English Bibles, most Indo-European Bibles, 
end with these 12. Actually, they're just called the 12. We call them the minor prophets, probably a nickname that came from St. Augustine. This weekend, we come to a small book written by this gentleman, Habakkuk. And as I studied this, one of the things that struck me is that Habakkuk has a lot of similarities with the book of Job. Both men question God's justice. Both complained to God. Both encountered God. And both ended up changed from that encounter. This is a very practical book at any time, but especially at this very moment in history. He reminds God's people, those that truly know the living God, that it's very easy to become fixated on what's going on in their lives or what's going on around them and forget that God is actually in control. And he reminds us to lift our eyes up and get our eyes off ourselves and our circumstances, and in that sense, to move from worry to worship. And his book is especially helpful when you are facing all kinds of things in our world, whether natural evil like hurricanes or typhoons or tornadoes and stuff that wreak damage or the big earthquake in Afghanistan, or moral evil. His book is very helpful as we look around and see war and devastation, whether in Israel or Ukraine, or if you're struggling with something in your own life this morning that is tearing you apart or leaving you confused. And the reality is, anytime you have a congregation this size, there are many here this morning who are in a very dark valley at this point. And you need help. You are desperate for some kind of word from the Lord. Habakkuk, is your answer. Here's a small book with a very big message. And that message is God can be trusted even when life feels utterly out of control, disordered, and painful. Even when circumstances in your life or around you leave you baffled, utterly confused, anxious, heartbroken, and overwhelmed. And that describes a number of us here this morning. So with that, we need a word from God. Let's dive in. There are three chapters to this book. In each of the three chapters, it's easy to summarize them with one word. And so the three words I have chosen to summarize the three chapters as we fly through this book this morning. Worrying, that's chapter one. That's frankly where a lot of us live too much of the time, including myself. Number two, chapter two, waiting in an encounter with God. And then chapter three, worshiping. It's a beautiful book. And again, a lot of parallels with the book of Job. So first of all, let's dive in chapter one. And let's talk about a couple of preliminaries. First of all, who's Habakkuk? He lived in southern Israel about the seventh century BC. We've talked all along that about 300 years or so before the 12 were written, you had a civil war in Israel. The nation split into two parts, 10 tribes in the north, two in the south. At this point in history, when Habakkuk is writing, there's only the two tribes left. That's called Judah. Sometimes we call the whole thing Israel, but the last two tribes are in the bottom that are left at this point really are called Judah. He is writing to those two tribes at southern nation, that southern group called Judah, 7th century BC. Why is he writing? He's writing to warn them about the coming invasion of the Babylonians, a brutal, brutal people. And he is warning them that they're coming. 
that's going to be something we're going to talk about in a minute. So the theme is trusting God's goodness and wisdom, even when life makes no sense to us. And again, that is exactly where a number of us are this morning. Even when life makes no sense, even when we are in deep pain and darkness, even when what's going on around us leaves us utterly baffled or full of anxiety, trusting that God knows what he's doing. That's the book of Habakkuk. The book opens with a very unusual format for one of the prophets. It begins with a blizzard of, ex, uh, of complaining. Uh, the prophet is sinking in the quicksand of worry and anxiety, and he is firing off complaints to God. Kind of a strange place to begin for a prophet, but this is inspired scripture, and that's where he was. So, first two verses. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received, verse 2, how long, Lord, the God's divine name is used there, Yahweh, so it's in capitals, and this is appropriate because Habakkuk knew the Lord. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? So context here for just a second. Who's he talking about? He says, the people are full of violence. There's injustice all over the place and you're not listening. He's not talking about pagan nations here. He's not talking about those who don't claim to know God. He is talking about the people of Judah. He's talking about the Jewish people here. He's talking about his own nation, his own people. And he is saying, Lord, look around. All the people right around me are full of sin and they're ripping each other off and they're lying and they're thieving and there's injustice and violence all over the place. Where are you? <laughs> Have you ever cried that out? Where are you? Context, again, these are his own people. He is not describing some kind of debauched, depraved pagan nation. He's describing God's chosen people. And the violence and injustice were so bad, and that sounds like downtown Chicago when you read verse 2, so bad, he's saying, what, where are you, O oh God? And so he fires off these worry-filled, anxiety-driven complaints. Look at verses 3 and 4. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are all around and there's strife and conflict everywhere. The law is paralyzed. Not a good situation. Justice never prevails. The wicked, him and the righteous, justice is perverted. So you got a prophet here who is mired in anxiety. He is sinking in worry. He's firing off complaints. God, look at your people. Your people who claim to be your followers are behaving abysmally. What are you going to do? Okay. Fair question. We noted before, before we go any further, before we see God's answer. We've noted before, and I've quoted from C.S. Lewis's book, A Grief Observed Before, because I love his reminder here. He says, when you are prone to worry, when you become filled with anxiety and dread and become consumed with despair or confusion, Lewis says, the great temptation for the believer is not to cease believing in God. 
Instead, Lewis says, when you become overwhelmed by anxiety and worry and discouragement and despair and depression, he said, the great temptation is not atheism. The great temptation is to believe horrible things about God. That's the great temptation. That he doesn't care. That he's absent. That he's derelict of duty. That he's cruel. That he's out to get you. Or that he's not worth trusting anymore. He's not good. C.S. Lewis said, that's the great temptation for the believer. That seems to be where Habakkuk is about this point. And this brings us to God's answer. Now, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. Habakkuk doesn't like the answer. And it's a shocking answer. And the answer comes in a series of imperative verbs. Look, watch, and be amazed. How often have you cried out to God? (laughs) And if I cried out to God, and he does answer in a way that you completely didn't expect. And in fact, you'd say, I'd like to roll back the tape and start this over again. And maybe ask for something different. But God answers. So here comes the answer, completely other than Habakkuk expected. So God says, look at the nations, watch. There's the second imperative verb, third imperative verb, and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. Here's what I'm going to do. You have a big sin problem there in Judah? Here's my answer. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who will sweep across the whole earth and seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. Verse 7, they are a law unto themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes will advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They will mock kings and scoff at rulers. They will laugh at fortified cities, cities like, you know, Jerusalem that has a wall around it, by building earthen ramps, siege ramps. They capture them. And when they sweep past like the wind and go on, guilty people whose own strength is their God. So God's answer to Habakkuk's complaint that the Jews and the Hebrews are behaving so badly, God says, okay, I got an answer. Here's your answer. I'm bringing in the Babylonians. Now, when you think of Babylonians, you have to think of the tactics and the motivation and the brutality of things, people like the Nazis, like ISIS, or like Hamas. And needless to say, this is not quite the answer that Habakkuk was looking for. It just led to more anxiety and more confusion. In in other words, God, look at the mess and all the people around, and they're living so poorly, and they're living so much in rebellion. God says, great, I'm going to bring in these brutal killers, and that'll solve the problem. And Habakkuk is saying, but that's not exactly what I was intending. That's not the whole point. You look at verse 13. Why would, he's now saying, why would you bring in people even more wicked, violent, bloodthirsty to solve this problem? How many of us have said something like that? Verse 13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You can't tolerate wrongdoing. Why then? Why do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent 
while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves. Why would God send a people in more wicked than his own chosen people to punish them for the rebellion? Let's stop right there. The reality is this. We fire up all kinds of prayers for all kinds of stuff. And God often acts in ways that leave us utterly confused, right? Not always, but frequently. He acts in ways that leave us in confusion, bewilderment, and perplexed. And then we end up throwing our hands and sulking off and saying, he didn't hear me. He didn't answer me. And what we mean is, he didn't give me exactly what I asked for. J.I. Packer, in his classic Knowing God, has a poignant little paragraph, and it just, it captures exactly what's going on in Habakkuk 1. He says this, we often feel sure that God has enabled us to understand all his ways with us. Haven't we all done that? I've done that. Have you done that? We feel sure that God has enabled us to understand all his ways with us and our lives. And then something very painful and quite unexplainable comes along and our cheerful illusion of being in God's secret counsel is shattered. Just when we think, I got it all figured out, everything's going really well, I'm praying, and then bewilderment, puzzlement, confusion, and the illusion that we understood exactly what was going on is just blown to smithereens. And here's the truth from the Bible. Confusion, young people hear this. Kids, hear this. By the way, if you have kids, young people, I hope you're bringing them into the worship service. They need to be involved in the worship of God in his church. They need to be sitting under the preaching of the scriptures. Kids and young people, hear this. Confusion is not an uncommon place for God's people to be. God often leads his people through times of darkness. Just because you're in a season of darkness does not mean God has abandoned you if you're one of his own. God often leads his people through times of uncertainty or pain or suffering. Many of us know the verse. It's a good time to read a verse like this because it fits perfectly with Habakkuk chapter 1. Isaiah 55, 8. My thoughts are not your thoughts. It's easy to read that and kind of blow past it, but God wants us to remember the way he thinks is not the way we think much of the time. And he says, my ways are not your ways. For you, maybe this morning, the confusion and the pain and the sorrow may be the betrayal of a spouse or a financial setback or the death of a child or the death of a dream or the loss of your health or mobility. And frankly, much of what goes on in our own lives and in our world right around us is bewildering, right? Much of what goes on, even right now, is confusing. It's baffling and it's perplexing. And it's certainly true of what's going on in the Ukraine right now and what's going on in Israel. Evil is on graphic display. And we want to cry out, verse 13 of Habakkuk chapter 1, Aren't your eyes too pure to look at all of this? Why do you tolerate all this? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? God, why do you tolerate 
Russia invading Ukraine? Why do you tolerate Hamas doing what they're doing to Israel? What's going on? And Habakkuk is saying the same thing. So chapter one ends with a prophet where a lot of us live, where I live, frankly, too much of the time. Worry, anxiety, dread, confusion. And we ask God, what's happening? That brings us to chapter two. The word here is waiting. In chapter two, the Lord now reminds Habakkuk of something very, 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 really very important. And that is this. That we are called, we meaning those who truly know Christ as Savior. I know not everyone here does, but if you know Jesus as Lord, as Savior, if you've been regenerated by his Holy Spirit and are born again, God's people are called to live by faith and to trust that he knows what he's doing. The word we use for that is providence. Comes from the Latin, providia, to see ahead. God not only sees ahead, he's orchestrating what's ahead. And the point is this, God knows exactly what he's doing. And Habakkuk is being told to wait on him and to trust him. And then, don't miss this, in an act of mercy, God actually lifts the curtain just a little bit and reminds Habakkuk that he will in fact hold the guilty accountable. There is comfort here. Now, this does not answer all of Habakkuk's objections, but God nonetheless issues five woes against those who behave in abhorrent ways and wicked ways and unjust ways. And he lets Habakkuk see that, letting us see that, because this is inspired scripture for us. And so these five woes against those who practice evil and injustice, if that describes you, if you're one of those who are practicing evil and injustice, odds are very high, some are here this morning. You need to hear these woes because justice is coming. Verse 6, woe to those who steal and plunder from others. There's lots of ways to steal and plunder from others. Verse 9, woe to those who cheat and swindle others and are dishonest. That describes some of you this morning. You need to hear these are heavy woes. Verse 12, woe to those who use violence and bloodshed to establish their kingdom or their city. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. That's true of the Babylonians. It's true of the Assyrians. It's true of the Nazis. It's true of Hamas. There will be a day of reckoning. Verse 15, woe to those who abuse alcohol and participate in sexual immorality. Verse 19, woe to those who worship false gods and engage in false religions. This message of judgment, by the way, is very consistent with the New Testament. Bible tells us this. When Jesus came the first time, he came to bear the wrath of God for sin, for God's people. And then the Bible says when he comes the second time, he's coming to wield the wrath of God against injustice and the ungodly. In fact, the description of judgment in the book of Revelation, specifically chapters like chapter 19, is downright graphic and violent. When you read about the returning Christ and the judgment he will unleash on an unbelieving world. And that brings us, friends, to the key verse in the book of Habakkuk. So kids, young people, adults, would you turn your attention to your Bible, chapter 2, verse 4, where we come to the key verse of the book. 
See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person, meaning the person here who knows God, will live by faith, or you can translate it by his faithfulness. The righteous will live by his faith. Faith in what? That God is on his throne. That he knows what he's doing. This is a key verse. And by the way, this verse is picked up in the New Testament three times. That's how important it is. Romans chapter 1 quotes this. Galatians chapter 3 quotes this. And Hebrews chapter 10 quotes this. And in the New Testament, the context of trusting God is applied to trusting in Jesus as Savior. That's why this verse is picked up and applied to saving faith in Christ. But nonetheless, it's quoted. Then look at verse 20. Here is what the faith and the confidence is that God is on his throne. In fact, our whole choir number this morning, wasn't that awesome, is based on verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. So when verse 4 says the righteous will live by their faith, it's, faith, it's not just general faith. It's, it's faith in what it, verse 20 is saying, that God is in his holy temple. Everything is right on schedule. God is in control of the details. Let all the earth be silent then before him. Stop the complaining. Stop the whining. Stop the accusations, Habakkuk. God says the righteous will live by their faith that I am on the throne and I know what I am doing. So what's the key here? The key is God did not answer all of Habakkuk's complaints. Far from it. He did offer a few explanations and reminders. Justice is coming. Don't worry. He's not going to turn a blind eye to anything like that. But more importantly than answers, here's what Habakkuk got. A fresh vision of who God is. And that is what we need this morning. That is what we need every morning. But especially when circumstances in our own lives or the news around us and the world around us is going crazy and bonkers, we need verse 20. And that is why this chapter ends so beautifully. The point is, when life and world events are careening out of control and our lives and world events seem filled with confusion and are chaotic, we need a fresh vision of God more than we need answers. And that is exactly what verse 20 offers. That's why verse 20 is so powerful. And that's how that chapter ends on waiting. So you got chapter one, where too many of us live all the time. Worry and anxiety and you know, chewing on our fingernails and we're fixated on our circumstances and we got the woes are me. Chapter two, God jolts Habakkuk, gives him a few reminders. Yeah, I will hold those who are guilty. I will hold them accountable. But ultimately, Habakkuk, you need to live by faith and trust that I know what I'm doing and I'm on the throne and let the earth be silent. Good reminder for us this morning in light of what's going on in the Ukraine, in light of what's going on in Israel. I have no idea how all of or any of that fits into biblical prophecy or last time things. That's not the point. The point is to be reminded God is on the throne. He will hold the guilty accountable and we are to let him do it on his time scale.
That brings us to the third chapter. And the word here is worshiping. And ladies and gentlemen, young people, chapter 3, Habakkuk chapter 3, is one of the most God-drenched chapters in the Bible. I hope you take a verse or a chapter every so often and spend more than just one day on it, but actually chew on it and soak on it. This is one of the most God-centered, God-drenched passages in the entire Bible. In chapter one, you've got a prophet fixated on craziness and chaos, and he's depressed. And in chapter three, you now have a prophet who is fixated on God above, and he has moved from worry to worship. And the lesson is this. Once Habakkuk lifted his eyes and put his eyes on who God is and reminded himself God's on the throne, here's what happens. We have a prophet that calms down, and it stills his soul, and it brings him peace. And that's what some of us are desperate for here this morning. Chapter 3 is an incredible psalm of praise to God. I'm going to start at verse 2 through verse 6. Lord, I have heard of your fame, and I stood in awe of your deeds. I stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day. Now remember, all of this is coming right after verse 20. The Lord's in his temple. Let the earth be silent. And then you get this psalm of praise. Lord, I have heard of your fame, I, stood, I stand in all of your deeds. Repeat them in our day, in our day, in our time. Make them known in wrath. Remember mercy. God came from Taman. That's just south of the Dead Sea. The Holy One from Mount Paran. That's a mountain in the Sinai Peninsula region of Egypt. His glory covered the heavens. His praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. I love verse 6. He stood and shook the earth. What imagery. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled. And the age-old hills collapse. But he marches on forever. So now we find Habakkuk choosing to trust God. That's a choice, by the way. You have to make, I have to make that deliberate choice to move from worry to worship. So regardless of the circumstances, the impact of verse 20, chapter 2, verse 20, is now becoming clear. We have a prophet who is calming down. And then you come to those wonderful last verses. Pastor Doug read them, verses 17 through verse 19, where you have a prophet who is now worshiping. He doesn't have a whole bunch of answers. But he's been reminded who God is. He has a fresh glimpse of who God is. To the point that even if everything's gone, he's at peace. That's a very different place than he was in chapter 1. And so he says, starting in verse 17, even if the fig tree doesn't bud, even if there's no grapes on the vines, and even if the olive crop fails and the fields have nothing, and even if there's no sheep in the pen and the cattle stalls are all empty, yet I will, what? Not just acknowledge, not just accept, I will rejoice in the Lord. A lot of people, a lot of Christians view joy as some kind of 
nice byproduct of the Christian life that can come and go, and it's nice when it's here, and it's unfortunate when it leaves. We need to be reminded joy is a command. We are commanded, I am commanded, you are commanded, if you know Christ, to fight for joy and to rejoice. We are commanded. It's not just a, we're commanded to pursue joy and to be joyful. Verse 19, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread the high places. So even if all the circumstances are depleted, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will be joyful in God my Savior. Notice, it's not answers that solved his problem. It was a new vision of who God is. All right. There's all kinds of summons from this book. You've seen the book. We've done a flyover. Worry, waiting, worshiping. What does this book call us to do, church? What does it call me to do? And let me suggest three things that scream at us from this book. Three summons. Number one. Remember, church, remember me. I need to remember this. I mean, I'm talking to myself, talking to you. We need to remember God is good and he is in control. Chapter 2, verse 20. Again, our choir anthem this morning. Beautiful. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Again, this is the doctrine of God's providence. The doctrine that he has everything in control, everything's on schedule, and it has been a doctrine that has brought God's people peace over the centuries. And it should bring a calming peace to every true Christian here. Reminder that God is on his throne no matter how things appear on CNN or Fox News, no matter what you hear, no matter what's going on in our life around us, that he is working out his goodwill. And it's a reminder that God will bring justice to the guilty and he will complete everything he's done and even in the midst of what looks like total chaos and craziness he knows exactly what he's doing and he's on the throne that is the first summons we are to remember that and keep preaching that to ourselves I've quoted Dr. Lorraine Bettner before I'm going to quote him here this morning because it's such a good quote and it summarizes this book so beautifully it summarizes the book of Job so beautifully and so much of the Bible's teaching on providence. Here's what he says. Dr. Lorraine Bettner from the 1930s <laughs> in his book, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. That's his book, big thick book. But in the middle of that book, he has this wonderful, delicious quote. Quote, amid all the apparent defeats and inconsistencies. So think of it. Amid all the apparent defeats and inconsistencies of life, God actually moves on in undisturbed majesty. Close quote. Isn't that a beautiful quote? Amid all the apparent defeats and inconsistencies in life, of which there are many, God actually moves on in undisturbed majesty. Close quote. That summarizes Habakkuk perfectly. Let me recommend two things under this first summons. Number one, that you spend time in the book. That you are regularly involved in scripture. It is amazing how many people who profess to know Christ don't read their Bibles. We even bumped into missionaries on this trip who weren't reading their Bible. 
And I'm like, you need to be reading your Bible. You are a missionary. Christian first, missionary second. Friend, you need to be in your Bible. Young person, you need to be in your Bible. Regularly reading it. Let me, ask, let me suggest something secondly along that. Make sure at least a couple times a year you're reading a meaty, theological, biblical-centered, God-focused book. Not just fiction, not just historical fiction, not just devotional literature, but something that's going to stir your heart and mind and remind you who God is, like knowing God from G.I. Packer. You should read that. Providence by John Piper. My 87-year-old mother-in-law just finished that 700-page beast. But it is a good filet mignon. Can't recommend it highly enough. Becky and I have both read it. Providence. You need to wrestle with good literature like that. Or R.C. Sproul, The Holiness of God. Or Arthur Pink, The Sovereignty of God. Those are the kind of books that when a Christian reads and wrestles with and underlines and then reads scripture along with them that dig us deep roots. You can tell when someone has been reading those kinds of books and reading the scriptures and been in prayer over the years because there's a stability to them. There's a solidness to them that you don't see in so many. So reminder number one, first summons, remember God is good. He's in control. He's on the throne. Second summons this morning, trust God is good even when he makes no sense to you. Trust that he's good, even when he makes no sense to you. Back to verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4. What's it say? The just will live, the righteous will live by faith. Now, according to the New Testament, this begins by trusting Jesus as Savior. You have to cross the point of saving faith. If you haven't done that, I urge you today to make today the day of your salvation. That verse is applied in the New Testament to trusting Christ. But then, after salvation... There is still the battle to continue to trust that God knows what he's doing, even when he doesn't make any sense to you, when your plans seem to have completely have been suffocated and blown to pieces. Let me give you one of my favorite examples as I was working on this sermon. Someone I see who stayed the course, no matter how many confusing events came his way because he and his wife believed God knew what he was doing. And that is the great missionary Jonathan Goforth and his wife Rosalind. Jonathan Goforth was a Canadian school teacher in the late 1800s, and he heard a call to go to the mission field. Now, the Bible's clear. Not every Christian is a missionary. Every Christian is to be an evangelist and share the gospel, but missions is a unique call to go cross-culturally. They receive the call from God, and so they shortly transitioned, and they sailed to China. He was there for almost 47 years. And it was not an easy assignment from God. They faced constant, confusing, and painful circumstances for decades. Decades. They contracted frequent painful illnesses. They endured long separations from each other as husbands and, and, and wife due to circumstances. They lost six of their 11 children post-birth. They lost three one-year-olds. They lost a two-year-old, and they lost a seven-year-old daughter. And on two different occasions, they lost all their possessions to fire and flood. 
and yet they remained steadfast. Even as he was going blind at the end of his life, he kept preaching the gospel as he reached his advanced age, and they trusted God even year after year at times when God made no sense. And there was a stability about them, a joy about them, because they trusted that God knew what he was doing. Lastly, remember to look to God's promises and to fixate on them. So we have, remember God is good, he's in control. Trust him when he doesn't make sense to you. And lastly, look to his promises. That's what verse 19 is about. The sovereign Lord is my strength. What's he doing? He's preaching to himself. He makes my feet feel like the feet of a deer and he enables me to tread on the heights. That is a man who is going back to scripture and he's preaching the gospel to himself. One of the reasons, friends, so many Christians end up in discouragement, at a dead end, in despair, and mired in bitterness is because they spend so much time fixated on their circumstances and their pain, and they question God and his, just like Job did. Like I said, there's a lot of comparisons between Job and Habakkuk. And in the midst of painful suffering, Job questioned God's justice. Interesting, Job didn't get any answers at the end of the book of Job. In fact, Job moved beyond Habakkuk. Habakkuk just complained and worried. Job actually started demanding answers from God. Not a good thing to do. And by the end of the book of Job, what happened? God did show up for four chapters, and Job got pounded with 77 questions from the Almighty, none of which acknowledged his pain, none of which offered any answers, and Job ended up a crumpled hump on the ground. And then he said about the only intelligent thing in the book, I've been a fool and I've said stupid stuff and you're God. That's the end of the book of Job. So what did Job get? What did Habakkuk get? A fresh vision of who God is. That is why I say the last takeaway here is look to God's promises and fixate on them because why? Explanations don't pull you forward. Promises pull you forward. So I'm going to end with a couple of my favorite promises from the Bible. You ready? Isaiah 54, 17. If you know Christ, if you're a true Christian, these apply to you. No weapon formed against you can prosper. Isaiah 54, 17. Or how about this one? Isaiah 40, verse 29. God gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. That applies to you, dear believer. If you know Christ or James 4, 17, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Or I love this one. I close with this one. John 16, 33, Jesus said this. I have told you these things so that you might have peace in the world. You will have troubles, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That is what a believer is to keep reminding themselves of. Amen.